that pertains to the S300 PMU2. Um, they will be visible. They will have to have some degree of electronic emissions of their own. Um, an S300 PM2 is uh, plenty long-ranged enough to engage uh, high-flying, uh, relatively slow-moving targets uh, below 50,000 feet easily. And so, you know, with this in mind, we have sort of this, The we have two problems, right? On the Russian side, they have, um, you know, what they thought was a good air defense system that cannot take out the primary now, now primary Ukrainian um, land attack missile, which is, you know, of course, HIMARS and, and maybe one day uh, attackums as well. <clears throat> so Russia has no real good way to stop it. Conversely, Ukraine, on the, on the other hand, of course, is suffering from these long range, um, you know, air dropped ballistic missiles and also caliber launched, you know, sea missiles. And so with this in mind, you know, Ukraine obviously is focusing on military targets. I mean, it's very obvious to anyone that is scrolling Twitter or looking at Telegram. There's no hiding it. They're hitting ammo dumps. You can see the explosions afterward. Grain and schools and hospitals simply don't do this. And on the other hand, you have Russia going after, you know, all manners of civilian infrastructure. And, you know, it's it's quite terrible. So I guess just generally speaking, how does this proceed? Because you have both sides that can't seem to break. Um, sort of the stalemate that, that's regarding specifically ballistic missiles and air defenses. What what could change to, to tip the favor to one side or the other? So there are two things that, that are already changing. The first is that, um, you know, as, as I've previously noted, uh, S-300, S-400 has a 0% hit rate uh, on, on HIMARS. Okay, it is completely incapable uh and i think i figured out why and we'll get onto that in a little bit uh it is completely incapable of knocking down HIMARS, which means that in in a very real sense uh i think we lost him um got john john to you did we lose portland it appears that we lost portland uh give us a moment while we get him back up portland can you hear us yep i'm back uh what did i miss you cut out at um, CJ. Help me out here. Anybody else? Where did you cut out at? You're talking about you know breaking the stalemate in terms of what sort of could change moving forward. In terms of um, you were you're specifically talking about the zero percent interception rate of S300s against Gimlers. Yeah. So that there is that. This means that UK Ukraine can strike any target that it wants to hit uh, that is in range of high Mars with impunity. The next thing that is going to have to change, and there are signs that it, it is changing, is that at the moment, Ukraine has to concentrate its air defenses on targets of military value, which means that the targets that Russia is mainly focusing on, which are terror targets, shopping malls, schools, hospitals, grain silos, um, so on and so forth, are pretty thinly defended. With the addition of NASAMs and a couple of other systems that are in discussion, Ukraine should be able to to uh, develop a robust enough air defense network that there will be at least some reasonable level of protection um, for any reasonably major populated area 
which means that Russia's ability to execute these terror attacks uh, will be much diminished. Now, the logic behind terror bombing is just unavoidably uh, defective, that there is no evidence of them ever being successful in breaking the will of an attacked population. Uh, the only thing that the the Blitz uh, achieved in in the Second World War was to piss the British off um, and make uh, an, any attempt at reaching a negotiated settlement, which the Germans um, really wanted because they didn't want to be fighting the British. They wanted to be able to focus on the Soviet Union without having to worry about us slipping a knife between their ribs. Likewise, the uh, British and American area bombing uh, of German cities during the Second World War just hardened the uh, uh, the resolve of the German populace, and that is why the Americans in particular invested so much resources in the Norden bomb site, because, you know, the, the, uh, the conviction was, and I believe that this was correct, that you can't bomb an enemy population into submission. You can only destroy their ability to... Um, enhance uh, or continue to support the war industrially. Um, you know, the, the idea that, that Russia is going to be a... I mean, even, even the American carpet bombing of Vietnam, which was one of the most completely one-sided and, and hilariously destructive um, aerial campaigns in history, uh, failed to break the will of the North Vietnamese population. Russia is trying to do a thing that we have more than a century of evidence telling us cannot be done. Yeah, and just to add on there too, you know, from the Amer American and British um, bombings of, of Germany, which, you know, did also kill, you know, hundreds of thousands of civilians. In a lot of cases, you know, German production still was going up at that point. I'm sure Axel can speak a little bit more to this, but, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to, when you're trying to, you know, let's just say go from strategic military targets, uh, like factories and things like that, as opposed to the actual troops on the ground, um, you know, in terms of processing, what are the immediate effects? It ends up being uh, quite difficult to actually make a difference as opposed to destroying <laughs> ammo dumps with maybe a couple of conscripts guarding it that, that has a real impact. And so, you know, when, when any of us look at why Russia is doing uh, these sort of bombings, everyone is just scratching their heads, or at least I am still, because although it's quite terrible, it's not helping them at all. It's as Portland pointed out, it's only, you know, strengthening the Ukrainian will and also strengthening the international coalition to continue to give Ukraine more and more lethal aid. So it doesn't seem to be achieving any sort of end state uh, for the Russians that would be good for them. But, you know, I'm sure maybe someone else has more on this. They are trying to win a fear-porn war. They're trying to project fear and destruction, and they're trying to elevate themselves. This is the Potemkin village approach. They're trying to showcase, we are strong, we can destroy you, you should be fearful of us. And to an extent, some of the Western European politicians and a large part of Western media still falls prey to that. And the longer, fortunately, American Western Anglophone resolve 
is there, the less this has a chance. May I ask a question regarding the ADR Portland, and then we'll go to Constantine. Um, so, so, so regarding the, the, the field of regard you mentioned, um, or so if it can detect targets, um, what, up to a 42 degree elevation, I, I'm trying to get a sense, you know, what, what's the line of sight on this, on this radar um, emitter, you know, in terms of, you know, what's its um, horizon, because at some point, the, in, in its flight trajectory, the, uh, the M30 or the M31, the Gimlers, is going to be, you know, less than, you know, 42 degrees, um, uh, you know, angle off the ground. Uh, but at, but when it is, is that, um, you know, below the radar's horizon? So the distance to the horizon is, uh, is going to be, uh, depending on terrain conditions, somewhere between 19 and 20 kilometers from the top of that map. So the thing is, is that if you had a target that you were attempting to address with Gimlers that was uh, less than, call it 25 kilometers from one of these, um, from one of these sites, in theory, you should be able to engage it. But by the time this thing comes back into um, its field of regard, it's traveling um, uh, exactly perpendicular or damn near exactly perpendicular to that to that target. So it's going to cross that 24 degree, pardon me, arc extremely quickly on the order of second. The other thing that you've got to deal with here is that if you've got a target that has an S400 battery in exactly the right position to theoretically be able to engage you, you can just engage that um, you can just engage that S400 battery itself and because it can't look straight up, which is more or less when you're, where your missile is coming at you from, um, it will not be able to see you. What you're describing is that by design fault, they have no sensor capacity to detect that and they are blind. Yeah, this is a massive conceptual own goal. They, they made the mistake of assuming that Western weapons manufacturers would design their weapons with the same design concept as Russian missiles. So they proofed their missiles against their own low apogee, high speed, large warhead weapons. And it didn't occur to them that we would design a weapon with an apogee of 35 kilometers, 30 to 35 kilometers. That would, that would be a small payload, highly accurate. Uh, okay, so here's, here's basically how I worked out what I've worked out. Um, so I went and I looked at all of the known uh, confirmed HIMARS strikes that hit things that were not supply depots. So command posts, troop concentrations, artillery tubes, so on and so forth. Because what I to look at was what shape is the ejector, okay? Is it fan-shaped? Is it, is it circular? Because that tells me, uh, by application of the bug splat effect, what the rough angle of that projectile was when it hit the ground, right? And since those ejector rings are all circular, 
um, that tells me that those missiles are coming straight down. And we know roughly how fast these things go. So you can work backwards from there and you, you go, okay, so now I know uh, how far can it shoot, which gives me my major axis for an ellipse. What's its apogee? Okay, how fast is it going at impact tells you how high was it going because it has no uh, secondary rocket mode, right? So all of its acceleration has to be due to gravity. If you know how fast it's going when it lands, you know how, how high it was dropped from. So what you wind up with is a situation where you've got missiles coming in at between 85 and 90 degrees from the vertical no from the horizontal sorry nearly vertical um which means that my previously observed apogee of 10 kilometers is not representative these things are actually falling from between 30 and 35 kilometers. now the thing about this is that if you have an s300 or s400 that is far enough back it should be able to see that missile right at its maximum apogee on paper, S-400 is capable of engaging um, extremely high-speed missiles at very high altitudes. The problem with this is that when you do all of that math backwards so that you figure out, okay, it landed at this speed. I know what acceleration due to gravity is. I know that it's flying a quarter of an ellipse. You can eliminate all of those variables and what you get left with is at the point at which this missile has zero vertical velocity what is its horizontal velocity and the number i came up with is less than 20 kilometers per second sorry 20 sorry less than 20 meters per second which means that at the point at which this thing would be most vulnerable in theory to the kind of missiles that russia would be shooting at it it disappears off their pulse doppler radars because it is below the moving target indicator threshold wait one is everyone silent right now yeah sorry i had to bring the kids back so i have a question for portland do you know what is the speed of the um, like highest velocity of the high mars missile uh m m31 versus uh, missiles that are using in in s300 and s400 I'm asking this uh, because, you know, if you're shooting it from uh, high Mars, for example, from 60 mile, kilometers away uh, and the, um, the S-300 or 400 uh, you know, uh, uh, battery stands, uh, you know, 40 miles away from the target as well, uh, you know, the, the speeds of, of the missiles, they, they become important because it's simply, you know, um, if launched a bit later, just a couple of seconds, and it, it may simply physically not able to, to intercept it because of the uh, how far high Mars missiles already already traveled. Is 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 that the case, or uh, they have such a saturation so so they have uh, they don't have this problem? So the um, the high Mars missile tops out at between Mach. 2.42 and Mach 2.5, but it only achieves that speed on its way down from Apogee. Now, the um, the S-400 missile is about a Mach 5.3 missile, so 
in theory, it should be plenty capable of detecting um, these missiles coming in. But you've got two problems. If you are far enough away that your radar has the correct angle to be able to actually see that um, that M31 missile at the top of its apogee and thus get a timely intercept, then your your interceptor is going to have to travel hundreds of kilometers. Um, where the from the time okay, so you remember my explanation about pulse Doppler radars, right? They have to be set up um, with a view to filtering out anything that is not an interesting target. Okay. Yes. Right. So the thing is, is that the HIMARS missile is going so slowly at Apogee that it will get filtered out by the moving target indicator. By the time it has fallen enough to pick up enough speed to appear on that moving target indicator, it's already down um, below about 30 kilometers. And it is going, it's, it's accelerating with gravity. So it only has a, uh, if you follow that elliptical curve, um, it's only got to fly less than a quarter of that total ellipse, which is only about 62 kilometers. With the field of regard that you have, your missile needs to be probably on the order of 200 kilometers away. Your launcher has to be uh, 200 kilometers away for you to be able to see that thing at the point at which it becomes visible. And as you are doing that, it is falling. So you need to be going three times faster than it is in order to intercept it before you can hit the ground. Well, if you take the maximum How speed, likely is that, Portland? Um, fucking difficult. Let's just call it that. That's assuming that you have some sort of like incredibly advanced, fully automated system that can make the decision to execute the launch the moment you get a a track quality return. Um, and if you assume uniformly accelerate, uh, yeah, uniform acceleration, 62 kilometers, maximum speed of about Mach 2.5, that means average speed on the order of about Mach 1.5, which means that you've got to be going uh, Mach 4.5 for your entire flight, which we know they can't do. They're not terribly high acceleration missiles. They get up to up to a phenomenally high speed. But a maximum speed of Mach 5.3, you've got 20 seconds or so to get it up to that speed. And once it's up to that speed, any maneuvers that it takes will rob it of of further forward velocity. So the effective maximum speed on this thing is probably about Mach 3, which you will note is less than Mach 4.5. So essentially, just just uh, for, for us stupid people, what you mean is that intercepting HIMARS missiles is... Uh, can be done, but the chances of doing that are incredibly low, and you have to have those so well positioned, uh, uh, and because you don't know from where HIMARS is going to be launched and from which distance, it makes that uh, virtually, if not impossible, but really uh, low, has low probability. So defending against HIMARS as a point target, as as a 
as a battery under local control is for all practical intents and purposes with S-400 impossible. Defending against it as an area target with an airborne early warning radar or against targets that are, say, 200 kilometers in front of you is possible, but incredibly difficult. Got it. Thank you. Portland, with that being said, could you, um, building off this a little bit, could you explain the uh, what the potential implication of that would be in terms of S-300, S-400's ability to intercept uh, attack them? Oh, there is precisely 0% probability that they can do that. If they can't get Gimlers, they sure as shit can't get Attackums. Not to mention Attackums has a maximum flight ceiling. Oh, let me think. 50-ish kilometers, probably higher. It's, it's okay, I'll, I'll say this. It's definitely not lower than 50 kilometers. The S-300 interceptors just can't climb that high. They top out at around 115,000 feet, uh, which is, I know somebody do the math, around, uh, what, 43,000 meters? That's the end of it, yeah. So they're not fast enough, they can't shoot high enough, and they can't and by, actually... Yeah execute the mission quickly enough their sensor the capacity time, is too short yeah and by the time the uh the attackums gets down into the area where they can even point their radar at it uh this thing's already doing mach 1.5 you think about how difficult it is to defend against a projectile that only starts out doing 200 meters per second Okay, this thing is going to, by the time you get back down into the S-400's field of regard, this thing's already doing about 515 meters per second. So I am revising my assessment of they could probably intercept up to two-thirds of a uh, uh, of a uh, Attackums barrage to... Um, based on the the math and the analysis that I I have done today, I would put money down that they would be completely incapable of intercepting attackums at all. So what will they be trying politically there for if they can't beat it technically and militarily? Well, beat them psychologically. Terrorize them. Okay. They'll try and beat the European politicians into submission before the attackers can pick them up. Yeah. And I, and I think that's why Shoigu, uh, Russian uh, minister of war, essentially, uh, said today that they will try, he ordered troops to escalate, to increase uh, military activities. That's why they started striking civilian targets. Uh, that's why they, you know, trying to escalate as much as they can. Uh, because right now they grab the land, they want to keep it. And for them, the strategy is just, you know, scare everyone and think that uh, if we, you know, just uh, put status quo on the paper, then uh, everyone is going to be, uh, everyone is going to be happy. That, that That's what the narrative they're trying to push with their, um, w- w- with their current actions, I think. As Yehuda and Ben Hodges said, and McRide. There's no time like the present. Goes for both sides. And I have a question because there were some, you know, quote unquote evidence from people. They never showed the evidence, but they were saying that they were shooting Pachka U's at the same time they were shooting the Gimlers. 
um, to kind of either distract the Russians. Have you seen any evidence for that? Um, you know, because it, from what it sounds like and from what it looks like, it doesn't need, you know, they don't need that extra level of protections for the Russians to hit the Gimlers. I don't know if you've seen any evidence for that. So that was definitely something that they were doing, but the reason that they would, they were right about what they were doing, but they were wrong about why they would do it. Um, the thing is, is that if you use Gimlers and Tochka together, then you can address a much, much more complicated target package than if you use them individually. Tochka is actually kind of the classic example of the extremely high payload, uh, you know, low, uh, high speed, uh, low apogee missile that I believe the Russians were, uh, quote unquote, proving the S-400 against. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that that is a, a very interesting observation. CJ. Yeah, so just wanted to kind of put this to rest, and, and hopefully Portland can explain our way to put my mind at ease, even though it's not too worried. You know, over the last couple of weeks since these things came into play, you know, we've seen a lot of disinformation. Uh, the first line of effort, of course, being uh, you know something along the lines of, oh, well, Ukrainians have sold these things to us. We, we will, you know, sort of reverse engineer them. And then the second line was, oh, we just put Spetsnaz in to capture them. You know, we'll figure it out. I, I guess... From your understanding of it, like from an engineering standpoint, if Russia was able to get their hands on one of these, would they be able to figure out in a constructive way how to better, you know, sort of um, defend against them? Because I think, as you kind of pointed out, sort of the physical limitations of taking them out, I, I think even if they did have access to all the information, they still wouldn't necessarily be able to do too much better. But I'd be curious about your thoughts. So, um, yeah, I think that where we're at is that Russia has sort of bet the farm on a concept of operations that um, uh, a Twitter rando from Portland was able to um, unpick basically with a calculator and a napkin and a pet, right? And, and some YouTube videos. Um, I, I don't think that even if they got their hands on one of these, that they would be able to do anything with it because they have just so completely invested in, in a set of machinery which is completely incapable of doing this job, and I don't even see how you could adapt it. Yeah, no, and I mean, since it's all GPS-guided, you know, there's nothing you could learn from the guidance system to try and defeat it. You know, it's just your typical... GPS guiding versus not, but as we know, there's a lot of fail safes in this thing to kind of get around that. So, okay, thank you. That uh, I think that helps a lot. Yeah, and and not to mention that like Russia has GPS technology. Russia has inertial navigation system technology. These are not new. What Russia sucks at is quality control, and until they can find a way to not suck at quality control, they aren't going to be able to replicate this capability. I would, uh, and, and uh, this is what I totally agree with Portland here. Imagine that, uh, you know, uh, all those technologies, uh, uh, missile technologies, the GPS guidance, it's, it's all there on the, it's, it's nothing new at, at this moment for anyone. So it's like, uh, basically, even, even they, if they get their hands on it, 
imagine that um, Russia uh, uh, vehicle production, like auto, auto, auto production, like cars and their factories, you know, they could have gotten their hands on Toyotas and uh, Hondas and, I don't know, pickup truck Fords, uh, et cetera, uh, or BMWs. You know, they have them. It's, it's not a problem uh, if you get your hands on it. It's a problem if you can have this culture of manufacturing, whereas Portland has said you have good uh, quality control. Uh, you have, you know, engineers that can follow this, uh, the procedures. If you have, the, this is a culture of, of industrial culture that, that allows uh, Western, Western manufacturers and, and even Easterns, you know, like Japan or uh, South Korea uh, to do those things. It's, it's not that they have mastered something absolutely new. It's just that uh, they, in, in the West and uh, in the countries like uh, South Korea, uh, they, you know, can be disciplined uh, they can be careful enough and they can be, you know, uh, meticulous enough to, to have this production not only complete, but also keep it cheap. That's, that, that's the key here because, I mean, uh, Russia could produce a lot of things, but uh, the price of those will be uh, highly under question. So uh, when you're manufacturing something, it's, it's, it's often, you know, not if, can you do this? It's often like how much would it cost, right? So... If Russia, I just don't think that they will be able to do this due to their uh, problems with with an, you know, in on industrial uh, culture level. That simply, you know, corruption, uh, lack of culture, lack of you know uh, respect for their own people. That's what's not letting them uh, do do the systems. Not not actually, you know, the fact that they need some to put hands on some Western technology. Is everyone silent or? It was silent. One wouldn't believe. Ben. Uh, thanks. Uh, Portland, thanks for the very interesting play-by-play. Uh, -play. With a math background and a chunk of physics, I was doing my best to follow along, but it's a different application than I'm used to. So if you don't mind a question on the fundamentals, I know with projectile motion, I'm thinking parabolas, but when you said elliptical, I thought, well, the HIMARS missile has its own propulsion. So I suppose the thrust turns it into an elliptical path. And Maybe I'll, I'll just tell you what I took in. You could tell me what uh, could be right or wrong about this. If it's about 60 kilometers away with uh, a max height in 30-some kilometers, uh, we have something that's almost circular. And so it makes sense then that the, the tangent along the side of the semicircle would be almost vertical. And uh, I'll just end my question there. Yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. So what you've got is um, an ellipse that is... 85 kilometers wide along its longest axis and 70 kilometers wide along its shortest axis. So it is almost circular, but not totally. Sorry, chaps. Let's move to Phil whilst we're getting other people up. Thanks, Axel. Um, I had a question for CJ about... Phil, uh, you have a massive audio issue. Better? Legendary by comparison. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I have a question for CJ, not too far out of the realm, but um, we heard that um, 10 more crabs are going to uh, Ukraine and then perhaps archers. Along with that, the second to last package uh, from the US said a thousand artillery rounds. My guess is that they're not standard artillery rounds. Otherwise, we wouldn't have announced a thousand artillery rounds. Um, 
are the crabs and archers um, capable of having some of the U.S. smart rounds? I don't know if they're Excaliburs or um, other types of uh, smart rounds, um, or even you know the German. We know that they have uh, um, their own smart rounds that are called smart rounds. Uh, so I was just wondering, like, with all of these newer you know technologies being being you know put there. And you know we're not seeing that many more fires on the Russian side of the of the front, like immediately past where the front is. Is it just because we're so much more accurate at hitting them, we don't need to send you know twenty to thirty rounds that are capable of causing a larger fire that's detectable, or is there something else going on there? Well, sort of two things, you know, and maybe Constantine will want to talk about the crabs a bit more. He's talked with more people that have used it. In terms of the archer system, I really, I can tell you based on Wikipedia, but I couldn't tell you anymore. You know, once Sweden gets fully into NATO, I'm sure we'll do a lot more exercises with them and get figured out what they're good and bad at. But yeah, yeah, it's very important. You pointed out the 1,000 rounds were all precision guided. And so they're probably going to be coming from the U.S. stockpiles, which means, uh, you know, really one of two things, of course, Excalibur, which is one everyone knows at this point, notable for its extremely long range, about 40 kilometers from a 777, much further from um, a crab or sort of any other system that's um, self-propelled because it's a longer tube. But also PGK, which is great in combination with the rocket system propellant uh, to get that same kind of range, not as great accuracy, but pretty great accuracy. So with all the NATO systems, all they need is a GPS. So pretty much every single self-propelled howitzer and NATO's arsenal has one of those. And Notably, in the last batch of 777s that were given, uh, which is 20, they were all given with the GPS modules in them, which means they can now fire all of these um, PGMs. So, you know, now's not the time to take the the foot off the gas. You know, the other thing to keep in mind when you talked about the, the number you have to shoot, when you think about artillery usage in the offense versus the defense, when you're using artillery in the defense, the reality is you have to shoot a lot more. Um, and you're going to miss a lot more because the reality is if you're getting attacked from two or three different sides at once and the enemy is moving, it's not a great target for artillery. So you kind of think you're hitting areas where you think they might be, you're hitting areas where they might come from. But when you're in the offense, it's completely different. You actually fought, you have to fire maybe um, less. And because the reason is, you know, the defensive area, let, you know, let's say you're coming up on a town that, you know, Ukraine wants to re- reoccupy and take back the reality there's only so many places the Russians can be in that town. Uh, and, you know, the buildings aren't going to get up and move. So it ends up being a very easy way to minimize your artillery usage in the offense, because the reality is there's much less places they could be. So, you know, every round is counting a lot more than in the defense. We're just kind of shooting to, to keep them back. So hopefully that kind of helps paint the picture there. But, but yeah, it's about 20 howitzers a week. The amount of ammo given to this point is something on the order between 600 and 700,000 artillery rounds. And in the latest report uh, from both sides, actually, you know, Russia is down to firing about 20,000 rounds a day from a maximum uh, about a month ago of 60 rounds a day. And Ukraine uh, similarly has gone from shooting about 5,000 rounds a day to somewhere between seven and eight. So they're slowly but surely closing the gap. The gap is almost two to one now, as opposed to, to 20 to one or sort of those more severe shortages. So it isn't going to be easy, but um, it's definitely getting a little bit better. Constantine, do you want to talk about the Ukrainians that have used some of these systems and what they think so far? So I don't, uh, there is like uh, information that I cannot talk and I wish, I'm not sure that I I should know this, but um, uh, there is a, a problem uh, with the 
count of uh, precision uh, precision munition. So uh, mostly the munition that is used is not precision guided. It's uh, but um, from my experience uh, that uh, from experience that I got from the people uh, who are using uh, uh, crops is that uh, uh, United States provided rounds um, uh, are so precise that it's actually they don't really need there is no not much need for Excalibur except for the range. Uh, and so they're using just uh, HE uh, 795, I think, rounds, and they are just, you know, so precise that they can hit targets from one or two rounds uh, without any problem. So uh, they are really happy, and uh, they work on the high distances as well. It's not maybe not maybe not 40 kilometers, but it's pretty safe, and they are pretty far away uh, as well. So. Um, I, like uh, there are probably uh, uh, precision guided munition like uh, uh, like Excaliburs uh, over there given to Ukraine, but I think that it's uh, um, it, it it's not you know that uh, uh, important. It's at the moment uh, it, we can work pretty well both with with the uh, standard rounds that are given to Ukraine. But of course, those are nice, and especially when we consider um, consider our systems like Archer, you know, that are super, super uh, long range, super fast. Uh, and uh, but once again, that that's just experience that that I've heard from from the guys uh, on the on the howitzers. Thank you, guys. Uh, I had a follow up question, but CJ answered it. Is are we starting to see a shift in the way that they're using the artillery on the front uh, from the Ukrainian side with the HIMARS in theater? But you've already answered that going from defensive to more offensive um, capabilities, you're going to switch the way you use them. So I'll just change my question to Constantine. Have uh, have all of the uh, have all of the earmuffs been uh, been delivered uh, and ready to send to all of these artillery men um, that uh, need them to protect their hearing? Thank you, guys. So uh, about the ear uh, defenders, how I, I was, you know, it was noted by someone that earmuffs are something that you keep your ears warm, and these should be named ear defenders. Uh, so right now, uh, the first batch that I received. Uh, Around a month ago, we delivered. Uh, it was 300, 330, uh, 330 units. Uh, they all are in Ukraine right now. Two hundred fifty of them are distributed. Uh, a bit more are still en route uh, to, to the to the crews. Uh, but the the batch that we got seven hundred right now. I I have not even received them in the United States yet. Right now, my neighbor is uh, complaining that my cat is trying to escape as he's it as uh, he's trying to put all the boxes inside inside my garage. So this is a work in progress. Yeah, it's definitely a good problem to have, you know, because as an artilleryman myself, and of course, you know, Constantine having been around a lot of artillery pieces, especially some of the largest that are still in use today, you know, even even obviously at the gun the amount of decibels is quite large, but even if you're far back, you know, let's say 200 or 300 meters, it's still over time can really add up not only on hearing damage, but also on TBI and other kind of brain injuries. So 
just having that extra layer of protection goes a long way. Even if your position never comes under fire, it's still quite a dangerous activity to do for long periods. And the amount that the Ukrainians are shooting is more than, you know, Americans have in a sustained way, right? Because each gun, just to kind of have people understand, each gun, especially the static one, is shooting anywhere between 100 and 300 rounds a day, um, which is quite a lot of shooting. And uh, it, it definitely adds up over time. So to everyone that donated, you you have uh, really helped in, in a giant way. That's kind of hard to kind of hard to contextualize because it's not like a tourniquet where you know it's quite clear it immediately saves someone's life or something along those lines. But you know, ten years down the road, when these people can still talk to their kids, still listen to their kids, and uh, become you know productive members of society, it, it'll be quite life life changing. And with sixty thousand shells from the Russian side. Uh that TBI explains a lot of their tactics too, where they keep uh, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, yet they keep getting repelled. So that explains a lot. Thanks, CJ. Uh, so about the, about the ear protection, I wanted to add one thing that is that the feedback that I'm getting right now is that what it allows them is uh, to, to, uh, to be more efficient. So uh, when, when they would shoot around, uh, the entire crew of M777 have to move away, they have to duck, they have to cover their ears with the hands, then they have to yell at each other, you know, uh, to, to give the commands, you know, to coordinate, and it was, uh, it was very unpleasant, uh, unpleasant uh, experience. And at the moment, what they're saying, uh, they can, you know, just do their job, stand next to the uh, well not, they still have to move according to the safety rules that's what I understood but they can do it much uh, much efficiently much uh, uh, with, without much problems and, and communicate without covering their ears and it, it it really saves and I got really good and positive feedback from that and another thing that I wanted about the, the ear defenders is that uh, for crabs uh, and uh, self-propelled howitzers it's not as much as important as for pions and as for uh, M777s because M777s and pions you have to stand uh, outside uh, and it's it, next to the gun and it's, they say it's, it's much louder than in when you sit inside of SPG. That that's the feedback I got. I'm I'm not sure how that works because I've never shot an SPG inside an SPG, but I know that how it works with pion and. Uh, and D30, so, yeah. And we're working through some uh, technical issues here as we get another co-host, Clyde, go for it. Thank you. Um, I haven't been listening that long, but I heard Portland analysis, some of the comments, boiling it down for a layperson um, after talking about what the Russian answer is or is not for HIMARS and for ATACMS, if they're in the, if they're there. Is it jumping too many conclusions to say that the port that is the source of the missiles that the Russians are using to slaughter civilians is now basically a sitting duck? Yeah, that, that port against these weapon systems is functionally defenseless. My God. As we said, all the jet. Thank you. Now, I do have a request for the listeners, which is um, my sample size is not all good because... I had, I was only able to use samples that I knew for sure were HIMARS and were not ammo depots, and preferably 
um, strikes um, occurring during the day or that can be geolocate, geolocated closely enough for me to find the crater with a satellite map, with a satellite photo. So if you have a video that you know for sure is a HIMARS strike hitting anything other than an ammunition depot, please send that to me because I would like to make this... Um, I would like to make this more robust. Brief mic check. We gotcha. Wonderful. I just, uh, finally, uh, my Twitter wasn't updated and I uh, crashed out and lost audio multiple times. So ho- hopefully that's resolved now. At least you sound like a Dalek now. Whatever the headset is you're using. Uh, AirPods. And I can see our friend Ben. So uh, what we're going to do now, we're going to do another swappity-doo and bring the jour de gloire into the ghost spot. While um, we're doing... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Ben. Go ahead, Ben. No, please go ahead. I, I had a, a, a quick thing, but please go ahead, Ben. Okay, I just wanted to uh, wish everyone a good evening. Um, and to thank Axel, uh, who really mellows down with the, as the night progresses. And I'm sure if we can keep him another two or three hours, he, could, he would become done right kind and 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 gentle like a like one of those puppies he likes so much anyway um it is now i almost, didn't hear a thing you said i i was saying that you 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 were a very nice person especially uh later at night <laughs> um good people it is very it's uh midnight past 26 minutes here in Paris. Uh, that makes it almost 6.30. Uh, on the East Coast in the United States, uh, 9, no, sorry, 3.30 in um, in LA. And uh, you're listening to the Walter Report. Do not hesitate to retweet uh, the space. Uh, it really, really helps us uh, bring more attention and more listeners uh, and we would love to have as many people uh, joining and talking and listening about what is going on in Ukraine because we really think that is where the future of the world is being played at the moment. And um, if you can, you can also uh, go to Maria Aid. The details are in the title of the of the of the space and. Uh, Give them a little something, or a lot of something, if you are so inclined, um, to to help help them help the Ukrainian soldiers and the Ukrainian society face the onslaught of the Russian armed forces. Uh, if you cannot do this yet, I just repeat: um, please retweet the space. That will be exceedingly helpful. And now. After one minute of this very short rant, uh, we're turning to our panel and to Mark. Uh, please go ahead, Mark. Can you hear me? Get him. Phil, can you hear me? And can you speak? I can hear you. All right. Fantastic. So go ahead. Uh, we'll go back to Mark as soon as he can uh, join. Thank you. Uh, Constantine brought up a really interesting point about with all the Heimars and theater and Shoigu and what he said and how, you know, the, it's basically just retaliation. Um, and all of these, you know, terror strikes are, you know, 
they're they're doing the opposite. They're hardening the people of Ukraine, and they're really pissing people off. People that uh, I have just interacted with um, during this whole entire Ukraine um, invasion war that um, that I've never spoken to about Ukraine before. They're like, oh my goodness, like just after, you know, uh, a, f- a few of the more recent strikes, they started talking to me about it. People that were, I've never engaged with about this. So more people are starting to notice how big of a terror organization Russia is. And my question is, could could Russia be like trying to engage the West more and have the West enter the war so that they they can say they lost to the West rather than losing to Ukraine? Could that be one of their missions with all of these crazy terror strikes that need to stop? Thank you. Um, CJ, you want to answer the question? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good one. You know, you know, quite obviously, if they wanted to uh, engage the West, they would they would strike at the West. But sort of you're kind of getting at something which what I agree with, which is that the Russian military is set up in such a way that it's it's very defensive in nature. Right. It can it's got a lot of vehicles and it trains every year in these massive training exercises specifically to defend against the NATO attack. So. On the one hand, that's how their military is set up. But it's also the signaling is to the West in a different way, because we sort of talked about how it's affecting Ukrainians, of course, which is just making them, of course, no closer to surrendering than on day one. But what it could also be doing is kind of show the West that look at how like helpless Ukraine is, right? Look at all these weapons you've given them, and they're just not having an effect on helping them uh, from this from what we're doing. And so in that regard, it could be trying to have a political influence. And I don't think it's necessarily working. Obviously, I think it's a terrible strategy, not just morally, but militarily. But I think it would be more along those lines than trying to get us more involved. Because quite honestly, based on you know Russian intercepts and Russian posting, these weapons and all the support that's been giving is having a devastating effect, right? It's forcing them to culminate early. It's forcing them to defend an area they weren't planning on defending. And so they they certainly do not uh, want the West to be more involved. They want less. And I think that's part of the reason why they're doing this terror campaign is to kind of show the world how much control they have in the situation. And it's kind of futile to, to try and resist. Thank you, CJ. And the other part is it's it's so crazy to see the telegram posts from the population of Russia, how crazy they are, too, at seeing their responses to these terror strikes and high-fiving each other. I mean, it's just insanity it's nuts it is but if, if you look at enough of them which unfortunately a lot of us do and you've probably done the same you know there is a lot of not only confusion but contempt for their government um you know they're basically asking why don't they strike more why aren't they going after the mili- ukrainian military what are they doing attacking these you know random civilians like they're starting to get more and more frustrated as well which is a sign that their strategy isn't working so yes, while uh, you know watching them, you know congratulate themselves on killing civilians is quite terrible. There is a lot of dissent growing, and obviously, I'm not going to say it's it's boiling over yet, but uh, that kind of dissent is very good. And, and I think Portland and others will say too, especially John, if we can get him back up here. This level of chaos and confusion in the